0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to speak with uh, Dan Bacher, environmental activist and expert on water-related matters. We talked to Dan uh, several weeks ago and promised you that he'd come back, and <laughs> we often make promises, and we usually deliver, and uh, today we will make that happen. That'll be in segment two, but let's begin the program today as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is December 10th, and it was on December 10th in 1845 that Robert Thompson, a Scottish civil engineer, patented the first pneumatic tire in London something that's made all of our lives a little bit more comfortable. On this date in 1898, in France, the Treaty of Paris was signed, formally ending the Spanish-American War and granting the United States its first overseas empire. On December 10th in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the UN General Assembly. And five years later, on December 10th in 1953, American publisher Hugh Hefner publishes the first Playboy magazine, with an investment of $7,600. There was no date printed on that issue because Hefner doubted that a second one would ever be printed. Our quote of the day comes from New York Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. Said General Cuomo in a report investigating Wall Street compensation When the banks did well, their employees were paid well. When the banks did poorly, their employees were paid well. And when the banks did very poorly, They were bailed out by the taxpayers, and their employees were still paid well. Our quote of the day comes from America's 36th president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who said, Doing what's right isn't the problem. It's knowing what's right. That was part of a revisionist history uh, in Newsweek magazine of the Vietnam War, which provides an anatomy of a quagmire and compares Vietnam to Afghanistan. We'll have more to say on that later. Our stat of the day is the length of our current war in Afghanistan, which is eight years, one month, 12 days. America's longest war was the Vietnam War, at eight years, five months, 21 days, meaning that sometime in the end of May, the war in Afghanistan will become America's longest-lasting war. If you're keeping score over in Iraq, they're currently at six years, eight months, 23 days fourth fourth place all time. It is also uh, now dragged on two months longer than the entire length of World War II. Not such a happy stat. A joke today comes from Jay Leno, who said recently, several states have a marijuana initiative. The marijuana initiative. I like saying it. It's the only time you get to say marijuana and initiative in the same sentence. Alright, let's move to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good week uh, last week for Mexican-Americans when it was announced that uh, in a sign of the recession's severity in the U.S., Mexicans have begun sending money to their relatives north of the border instead of the other way around. It was conversely a bad week for Dallas swimming pools, and it was revealed that Dallas police are looking for a six-foot pudgy man who they say repeatedly sneaks into backyards, dances around naked, and sometimes jumps into a swimming pool, then runs away. They believe he's been exposing himself in the same neighborhood since 2005. And it was surely an ugly week last week for literacy. It was revealed that Sarah Palin's new book, Going Rogue, is apparently doing very well. Although, for some reason, it's being sold in the nonfiction section. In fact, commenting on the book in The American Prospect, Michelle Goldberg. Said, various bloggers have catalogued its lies and evasions, even though it's so rich in both that I kept finding new ones I hadn't seen others pick up on yet. Adding, from the campaign point of view, such inaccuracies may not matter. Palin's positioning herself as the club for growth candidate, championing the ideologically comforting notion that Republicans have failed because they betrayed their principles, not because their principles failed the country. And I'm sure our good pal, Wilders, is going to have a thing or two to say about that a little bit later in this segment. And by way of some follow-up on previous programs, we spoke, uh, I guess, a couple years ago with author Stephen Brown about his book, Merchant of Death, telling the story of Victor Boot. Victor Boot was captured by the authorities in Thailand, but turns out was released. Yes, apparently in August, a Thai court unexpectedly rejected a U.S. request to extradite the notorious Russian arms dealer. It was noted that some arms experts and some members of Congress believe that the Russians may have bribed the Thai court because Boot had been acting partly for Russian intelligence. Commented Representative Ed Royce, Republican from California, The battle for justice for this international menace is not over. It is unacceptable that this man goes free. But you know, as the finger gets pointed at Victor Boot, we might want to recycle the stat we used on the show last year, which is that in 2008, American companies sold $32 billion in weapons on the world market, making the U.S. the planet's top arms dealer. According to the New American Foundation, more than half the top 25 U.S. customers in the developing world are listed by the State Department as undemocratic or engaged in human rights abuses. So it would appear that even though Victor Boot is back uh, schlepping weapons for the benefit of the Russians, uh, they still have some catching up to do. And this follow-up on something we mentioned earlier on this program. It appears that Eleni Sakopoulos-Quinolakis appears headed for confirmation as the next U.S. ambassador to the Republic of Hungary. She apparently breezed through confirmation hearings on Capitol Hill article about this in the Sacramento Bee quoted, Senator Barbara Boxer is saying, It's not always easy to pack up and move halfway around the world. You do it for love of country. Well, Senator Boxer, actually, no. <laughs> A lot of folks do it in America because they like the term ambassador, which you then get to use the rest of your life. They like hosting cocktail parties. They like being big shots in foreign lands. In fact, in America, ambassadorships are frequently the reward one receives for political patronage. Rob Hodakainen, writing for the McClatchy Newspapers, noted that uh, Sakopoulos Kulanakis is one of many Democratic donors to be nominated for ambassadorships in the Obama administration. Continuing was described as a time-honored tradition of past presidents. Currently, she and her husband have contributed $438,000 to federal candidates, committees, and leadership PACs since 1989, with 95% of the money going to Democratic candidates. Eleni's dad, of course, is Angelo Sakopoulos, possibly the leading proponent of urban sprawl in the Sacramento region. But you know, when you make a lot of money in real estate, you can then donate to people and you can become an ambassador. The British, by the way, don't seem to fall into this, uh, into this trap. They apparently believe strongly in sending people to ambassadorial posts that are actually qualified. Anyway, we'll try and keep an eye on what's going on over in Budapest. Commenting on this practice last June in uh, MinPost.com, Cynthia Dezik has said, President Barack Obama vowed to bring change to the nation's capital, but there is at least one controversial White House tradition that he has embraced awarding friends and big donors with plum ambassador positions abroad. remember a few years back when Senator Chick Hecht of Nevada was appointed the ambassador to the Bahamas. He said he was excited about taking the post because he heard they had quite a few good golf courses. Anyway, from the Only in America file, we have this item from the Oroville Mercury Register. Apparently, Orville Sanders, age 83, was bear hunting with two friends. Following a bear, their dogs had been trailing for about 45 minutes in the Tahoe National Forest. article notes it was the 19th bear they had treed that hunting season. They had usually let the other bears go, but one friend wanted to take a bear for the fur and the meat. So Sanders fired up into the tree, struck the bear in the chest, which then fell out of the tree, angry. Said Sanders, when it hit the ground, it saw me and there it came. That big bear reared up and looked me in the eyes. One of his companions shot the bear twice, but it kept coming. Standing on its hind legs, the bear bit down on Sanders' rifle, hand, and left arm. The bear then turned on companion Charlie Brown and bit him in the leg. Sanders was flown to Sutter-Roseville Medical Center and was told that he would have been dead another hour from blood loss. The bear, for his part, did die of blood loss. But I think I have to quote from the, the last part of this article to give it its real flavor. Quote, his arm was broken in four places and he had a bite in his other arm. I was lucky that bear didn't kill me, Sanders said. Sanders started rabies vaccinations, though it turned out the bear didn't have rabies. Sanders' arm is still bandaged and he says his left thumb will be permanently stiff. But he can still enjoy the sport he's been pursuing since he was 12. My question is, what's sporting about tracking a bear with dogs and shooting him with a high-powered rifle when he's up in a tree? This reminds me of these sportsmen who used to go out and shoot cannon at the ducks in the Bay Area. I don't know. To me, it just doesn't seem very sporting. You know, speaking of newspapers, we're still concerned about uh, their welfare. Stats out last month showed that daily newspaper circulation plunged 10.6% in the six months from April to September of this year. Over the six months previous to that, circulation had fallen 7.1%. The only large newspaper to report an increase? The Wall Street Journal. Circulation rose 0.6%. We've commented a lot in this program about some of the hilarious editorials that appear in the Wall Street Journal. Well, hilarious if you, if you think crazy opinions are funny. But I know many people still claim, uh, from all political persuasions, that it, the reporting is actually pretty good. All right. By way of follow-up on an article we talked about last year, the use of Gardasil in uh, young women, we suggested at the time that uh, there was no reason it shouldn't be used in males as well. And apparently now the FDA has agreed and has approved the use of the vaccine, which provides protection against human papillomavirus. HPV is considered uh, the number one sexually transmitted disease in America. I believe something like every other one of us has been exposed. They say if you've um, had more than five sexual partners, the odds of your exposure is like 95%. The virus is associated with genital warts and in females, cervical cancer. Luckily for us, a high percentage of people who get the virus don't develop either. But there is some high hope that uh, cervical cancer in America can be eliminated with the use of this vaccine. It's exciting stuff. And uh, as a physician, I've taken the, the position on this program that uh, the use of antidepressants can be life-saving. And they certainly have a role to play in medicine. However, uh, it's this correspondent's opinion that they are frequently overused and used for way too long, years and years. Well, some recent data has come out showing that, uh, well, there's some reasons why they should be used perhaps more sparingly. Last spring, biological anthropologist Helen Fisher and psychiatrist James Thompson, who specialize in studies of romantic attachment, say they've seen evidence that antidepressants alter brain chemistry in a way that minimizes the chance a person can fall in love or feel strong romantic attachment. Antidepressants such as Prozac and Zoloft, uh, called SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, lift mood by increasing concentrations of serotonin between nerves in the brain, but they also decrease levels of dopamine, a pleasure chemical that has a key role in the brain's love and sex pathways. Research has shown that these medications suppress sexual desire in many people, and a recent study found that they even led women to rate photos of handsome men as less attractive. James Thompson believes there are many antidepressant users out there whose feelings for new dates or for long-term lovers have been dulled by their pills. And I can tell you that as a physician, I have seen people complaining about this. And going from bad to worse, article this week uh, in the Los Angeles Times note that antidepressant medications, which are taken by roughly 7% of American adults, affect profound personality changes in many patients, which is far beyond simply lifting the veil of sadness. A study at Northwestern University found strong shifts in levels of neuroticism and extroversion in patients taking antidepressants. These are two of the five traits thought to define personality and shape a person's daily thoughts. These findings are striking, researchers said, because psychologists have long thought that such fundamental traits are moorings of an adult's personality that shift very little over a lifetime. Studies said it was unclear how long-lasting the changes in personality are, but the study on the, on the upside found that patients whose personalities shifted the most were less likely to fall back into depression once treatment had ended. No doubt uh, more research will be conducted in this area as it needs to be. And by the way, any opinion expressed on this program does not, of course, necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the Regents of the University of California. And it, when it comes to medical advice, we'd like to echo uh, our colleague, Dr. Dean Dell, who says on a regular basis, consult your physician. I think we made some passing mention months ago about uh, the efforts to get people to stop drinking bottled water. Currently, Eric Javerbaum, president of the public relations company Erico Communications, and Mark DiMassimo, founding partner of the DiMassimo Goldstein Advertising Agency, created Tappening, a campaign and a website, which is www.tappening.com, where they intend to educate the public about the petroleum consumed to make disposable water bottles and the huge burden the products impose on landfills. And by the way, I'll just talk about uh, the effects that plastics uh, leaching into the water that we drink and and beverages we drink uh, affecting us makes you want to, you know, store your water at home in a glass bottle. At least it makes me want to store my water in a glass bottle. But uh, this week there's an alarming study about uh, the tap water that uh, these gentlemen think we should be drinking in place of bottled water article by Charles Duhigg of the New York Times noted that more than 20% of the U.S.'s water treatment systems had violated key provisions of the Safe Drinking Water Act over the past five years. That law requires communities to deliver safe tap water, but since 2004, the water provided to more than 49 million people has contained illegal concentrations of chemicals such as arsenic or radioactive substances such as uranium as well as dangerous bacteria. The article notes that regulators were informed of violations as they occurred, but records show that less than 6% of the water systems that broke the law were ever fined or punished by state or federal officials. Boy, you know, that letter we read on last week's program about uh, how cities should be required to dump their sewage above where they take the drinking water out is, uh, you know, would solve a lot of problems. That's an example of one of those things we say, geez, we, where would we find the money for that? We just don't have the money for that. Well, no, we don't have the money for that if we're continuing to spend $2 billion a week in Iraq. I want to thank Millie for sending us a, uh, a website that revealed some of these ugly stats. Heck, we talked about uh, the length of time of the Iraq War earlier, while the cost of the Iraq War is set to surpass Vietnam's by year's end. According to the L.A. Times, if Congress approves a request for another $86 billion, the Iraq war will have cost $694 billion. The Vietnam War costs $686 billion in inflation-adjusted dollars. Of course, uh, a lot of this figuring is <laughs> leaves out some of the surreptitious uh, funding that went on through multiple sources, so it's, it's hard to get a good uh, good feeling for that. I was curious to note that that L.A. Times article quoted the price of World War II as $4 trillion dollars we've noted on this program uh, that uh, there have been estimates saying that the cost of the iraq war has in real dollars exceeded that of world war ii something which did seem a little unlikely of course when you factor in the the cost of these big ticket items uh it was plausible but but apparently no no it's, it's not so but if you're keeping score about the fiasco that is Iraq, the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated the cost of prosecuting a war in Iraq at up to $9 billion a month, on top of an initial outlay of up to $13 billion for the deployment of troops to the Persian Gulf. And by the way, it ain't a free ride to bring troops home. Returning forces to the U.S. has cost 5 to $7 billion. The Iraq War seems to have been lost in the shuffle as all the talk moves to Afghanistan, but uh, we certainly appreciate people like the News and Review, which have uh, published statistics to sort of keep this on the front burner. Barack Obama was elected uh, last year to to end these wars, and uh, he's not doing so as a lot of us would have hoped. And while we may not agree that an expansion of the war in Afghanistan is sensible, at least there's a certain logic to the war in Afghanistan that there never was for this fiasco in Iraq. Let's see if we can't lighten things a bit uh, at the end of this segment by hearing from our good pal, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst.
1: Thanks, Doug. And today I'm shaking my head in amazement at the publishing event of the season, Sarah Palin's Going Rogue, the tell-all tale of a small-town girl's short, strange trip to the top of the political heap, back down, sideways for a little bit, then spin around three times, a tiny retreat, and up again. And we're talking a sensation. On Amazon, like a shot, it's risen to number one in biographies, number one in fantasies, number one in septuagenarian abuse, and number one in total books sold. Flabbergasting the publishing world with sales approaching a million copies to an audience of people who don't read. Joining Jeff Foxworthy in the pantheon of redneck literature, Sarah Palin has become queen of the illiterati. The Illiterati. Hated rivals to the coastal, liberal elite, Illuminati hordes. Hordes. The woman who says in the book that when Katie Couric asked, What do you read? It was a trick question. Yes, that woman is now an author. A best-selling author. Not the first time a person has written a book without reading one. After all, a lot of politicians are authors. But we are opening up a brand new market here. The Illiterate Bestseller. The book world is not exactly enjoying its heyday right now, so you know there are conversations going on in publishing houses all over New York about taking this phenomenon and running with it. After all, what earthly good is a phenomenon if you can't exploit it? So here's some possible titles you can expect to see on bookstore shelves in the near future. Supermodel cookbooks. Photographic Bible for the Blind. An English Spice Guide. A Portfolio of Dick Cheney's Regional Drum Circle Retreats. Hawaiian Snow Shovel Etiquette. The Lactose Intolerant Cheese Compendium. The Muslim Guide to Saints. And finally, Literary Acquisition Guides for the George W. Bush Presidential Library. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will